We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Sophie. Sophie? Ah, looks like you're stuck with me for today's intro, guys. My week has been good, but not as good as Sophie's, as she's currently in Fiji with her fam for her father-in-law's birthday. I was more than happy to go over and celebrate, but he doesn't know me from a bar of soap, so I'm home. I've actually been doing yoga, and it's the chilled version of yoga, and I've been learning about breath techniques and stretching, and it's been a really good mental release, so I'm going to continue that into next week if I don't catch a cold. It kind of feels awkward me doing this solo, so I'll keep it short. This week, we have one of our favorite men on the pod, Dr. Golly, and he gives us a brilliant rundown of winter bugs, what's not his normal, tips on managing head lice and nits, what we need to know about fevers, what's in his medicine cabinet at home, heads up, it's very minimal, and most importantly, he does a beautiful job of making parents feel less anxious going into these winter months. We really hope you enjoy. Sophie, get back here now. Hello, Dr. Golly. Hello, ladies. How are we doing on this fine day? You know what? You said something to me when I had you on my podcast. You said it's so much easier being interviewed than doing the interview. You are so right about that. (laughs) It is. It is. Now, it's quite ironic what we're talking about today. We are talking about winter illnesses. And if you can hear from the sound of my voice, our house has already been ravaged by them. So I'm going to do something that's quite rare for me that I shut up, but I'm going to try my hardest to be a little fly on the wall and not talk too much because I know how annoying it is to listen to someone and all you want them to do is clear their throat and I cannot clear mine. So, look, I will chirp in. Watch this space. She'll talk the entire time. I know. Jade and Dr. Golly, you've got the floor. (laughs) (laughs) So for people that do not know who you are, Dr. Golly, please let everyone know. All right. So I'm a paediatrician in Melbourne and a father of three. I too am dealing with a semi-sick household at home. And like it's the just beginning of winter. I feel like it's all started very, very early. Mm. I see kids, young babies, all the way up to teenagers and deal with pretty much anything and everything. And um, it is very topical today because there are so many bugs going around. And I feel like post-COVID, People are so much more interested in bugs and in in (laughs) immunity. So it's great. It's a good opportunity to talk about it. I know I said I was going to shut up. We're two minutes in. Are people getting more sick post-COVID or is that, that just our brain tricking us and winter has actually always been this bad? I think it's a combination of both. The jury's out in terms of the science behind um, what bugs did during this period of, you know, they took took a little bit of a vacation when we went into lockdown, but it depends on where you lived what lockdowns were like, what the weather's like, what the distribution of COVID was like. But while we wait for the the science to tell us, I think that it's probably just much more on people's radars. You know, previously, you don't really think too much about illnesses and snottiness and colds unless you have kids in daycare. But Mm. now everyone knows about it. And now, you know, someone sneezes in public and everyone looks at them. So I think that people are just more sensitive to it now. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think people are more uh, attuned to it and more conscious of illness prevention, health promotion, and that can only be a good thing so long as we dial down the anxiety. And that's what I really hope to do today with you. Absolutely. So what are the most common illnesses in kids over winter? So I think the answer to that question needs to be divided into three parts because 
there is a little bit of confusion out there as to what the bug is, what the illness is, and what a complication is. So to break it down, for example, I had someone say to me, I've got RSV, I don't have pneumonia. And I just wanted to clarify, you've got an illness like bronchiolitis, like croup, pneumonia, all of these airway type illnesses, and then you've got the causes of them. So the causes are most commonly viral, and then you've got the common viral ones, and then you've got the bacterial ones, which may or may not need antibiotics. Then you've got, like, say, for example, you might have a child who's got RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, one of the commonest causes of, of the common cold, and they get a little bit snotty, a little cough, mild temperature, nothing too serious, but it triggers their pre-existing asthma, and that may be the biggest problem for them. So what are the most common illnesses in kids? It's just upper respiratory viruses are by far the most common then you've got the usual suspects like gastro and then the the curveballs like lice lice tends to be more common in winter months and we can talk about that when we when we go into the nitty-gritty no let's talk about it nitty-gritty that that didn't get past me that was hey you're not supposed to be talking (laughs) yeah but come on he can't drop a pun like that and for it to go unnoticed i know it was very good well done dr golly but on that note I had all of those things throughout my family in one week. We had a sort of mild or a cold, would you say? It had a fever, it was coughing, and then some other family members had gastro. So it was weird that half the family got this cold, the other half got gastro and the others didn't, and then lice all in one week. And you've literally just said that is the most common and we got it straight away, first week of winter. What the hell so it's all about proximity that's why that's the main reason why these things tend to happen much more in winter because let's talk lice for example okay yeah lice cannot survive without a host a louse will not survive on a a table for more than 24 hours because they're blood sucking so they live on your scalp and they suck your blood that's how they survive and then procreate and lay eggs knits and then the cycle continues. So it's disgusting. Sorry. Don't, <laughs> they don't jump. They only move from one person to the other by direct head to head contact or sharing of hats and brushes with, you know, immediately. So when it's raining outside at kindergarten, the kids are going to play indoors. They're going to be on top of each other much more, less space, and then they're going to be touching each other. And, you know, one kid puts on a beanie, the other one shares it, and that's how you're spreading lice. So it's all about proximity in winter. So it's not actually the coldness. It's the indirect, like, outcome of the coldness. Well, that's the beautiful interplay between East and West, okay? So I'm a Western health practitioner and we, I'm generalizing, but we typically deal with illness management and the East tends to focus more on health maintenance and illness prevention. So to answer your question, there is no scientific evidence in Western literature that says the cold gives you a cold. However, when you delve into Eastern medicine, they will tell you, and I I have to preface this by saying I am not an Eastern health practitioner. I'm going to absolutely like ruin this, so please (laughs) correct me, please. You know, and I don't even know the right language, but you know, when you stress the body, you drop immunity. And so, you know, there are certain points in the body that shouldn't be exposed to the cold, like the neck, the kidneys, the ankles, and, you know, even cold food the or, or extremely hot food. These things put the body under stress. And then there is a logical jump that you can say if the body's under stress and you are exposing to more pathogens because you're in close proximity, you're more likely to catch a cold or gastro or lice or something like that. Interesting. How do you get rid of lice? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a, a quite straightforward one, despite all of the old wives. This is something that's been around for thousands of years, right? So of course they have. They're like a miniature cockroach. Of course they've been around thousands of years. <laughs> they'll 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 be here after all of us. Oh, Do you know? I said on a part. It happens every time I say something on a podcast. The actual reality happens. I said, "Oh, touch wood." 
our family has actually never had knits, like myself included. And then this winter hits and I was like, is that a knit? And I didn't know because I've never had them. And then we found out, yes, it's knits or that's lice. And yes, we have to do the whatever the concoction was to put in their hair. And then I didn't realize you have to do it a week after. So rewashing all the things just in case. But is there any way to prevent and is there a cure? So the prevention is all about education, which is really hard with young kids. If there is an, out, an outbreak, you certainly do want to try to put the hair in braids and, and mm. minimize that kind of, you know, long flowy hair that's likely to touch someone else's hair. You can do those measures. When it comes to treatment, all of the things that, I mean, I've heard some wild and wacky treatments, you know, putting ice cream on hair, putting kerosene. There's some really bizarre things out there. The truth is an over-the-counter lice treatment that you get from the chemist is absolutely fine. What it tends to do is it tends to stun the lice and then you comb them out and remove them. What it won't do is it won't kill the eggs, the nits, and that's why you need to repeat the treatment one week later to get rid of the lice that are born of the nits before they get a chance to lay more eggs. And that's why lice infestations tend to run in families and you can have them for weeks and weeks and weeks because of, you know, sharing pillows or again, the proximity thing, sitting next to someone on the couch and just that fact that you can clear them. But if there's even just one nit left over, that can hatch and then they spread, et cetera, et cetera. Can you say into the microphone, Jade, oh, touch wood, I've never won the lottery? Touch wood, I've just never won the lottery. <laughs> Watch this space, people. We'll be back next Watch week. Watch this space. Now, not so much with lice, but for the other illnesses you were talking about, what are some red flags that we should look out for in our kids? Look, hydration is key. And that's probably the first question that a, a doctor will ask is what's happening with hydration. And there are different ways of measuring that. We have our methods of examining and assessing hydration, but at home, you can just simply measure how much they're drinking compared to normal. A breastfeeding mother will say that she doesn't feel as emptied. Formerly, you, you've got the direct number in front of you, or just simply if you know how much your child normally eats and drinks, you can you know that they're not having the right amount of intake, the usual amount of intake. Then you've got things like reduced wet nappies, concentrated urine, crying without tears, dry cracked lips, these kinds of measures of, of dehydration. But the real red flag is lethargy. I would always recommend that people seek a, a doctor's appointment if there's a persistent fever, so more than 48 hours. And can I tell you, do you know my number one marker of whether or not I'm concerned about a child? Maternal concern. If you are a mum and to a lesser extent a dad, if you're worried, if something doesn't seem right or doesn't look right, then almost always you are correct. So trust your gut. Yeah. One thing that is not really helpful is the actual temperature number. So that's another common thing I get asked is what constitutes a fever? When should I go to hospital? When should I just wait for the GP? I don't own a thermometer. Three kids at home, I've never, in fact, I actually bought one before our first was born and I only ever used it to check the bath temperature because I was so angry <laughs> that, I, that I bought it. I never ever use it on a child because temperature is a really useful thing to watch the trend of. If a child's admitted to hospital, we'll check it every few hours to see what's happening with those fevers. But the absolute number is not super, super relevant. And that's largely because most thermometers are quite unreliable. So if you show me a child, you know, if I get a phone call from a mum saying my child's got a temperature, it's 38.2, but they look totally normal. They behave mm -hmm. totally normal, eating, drinking, not lethargic. They look fine. I would say yes, the mum is probably broken. And by the same account, if, if a mum told me my child's got a temperature that's normal, but they're really lethargic, they're not drinking, they're just flat, I don't know what's going on then I would be extremely concerned. So I don't really care too much about the level of temperature. And look, a temperature in the 40s, you're going to know about it. You're not going to be bouncing off the walls and, and you know, smiling if your temperature is 40 plus. So say your child is unwell, they have a fever, they are, you know, they're sitting on the couch, they're not too bad, they're still drinking and eating. 
Would you give them Panadol or Nurofen to bring the fever down or would you let them just rest as long as they seem content? Well, there are two parts to that. Number one, you want to know where it's coming from. So if you've got a clear focus, it's upper respiratory, they're coughing, spluttering, sore throat, you know where the bug is, you can rest assured that I'm not missing, for example, a UTI, a urinary tract infection, Mm. a child who's got a fever who you cannot see or hear any symptoms, you worry that it's somewhere hidden, like a meningitis or like a a, a UTI or, or skin infection or something like that. In terms of pain relief and fever relief, it's all about, we call it supportive therapy. It's all about making the child feel more comfortable. So, you know, some people like paracetamol and ibuprofen. Some people don't like giving it. It's entirely up to you, your family and your child. And I think ultimately, if the child is uncomfortable and you can make them more comfortable, be it pain relief, fever relief, sometimes dropping their their pain and fever gives them an opportunity to eat and drink which can sometimes make them feel better. So I think it's absolutely fine to use them. There is a very common uh, belief that you can't give ibuprofen, nurofen on an empty stomach for the infrequent use during a child's illness once a month, once every two months, it's absolutely fine to give on an empty stomach. That is okay. Great to know. So you've said you don't have a thermometer, but you may have Panadol and Nurofen. Is there anything else that we should have in our, I'm just going to talk. I know that you've all just realized that now. So Mm. you're all just going to deal with it. I can't not, I'll end up banging the table or something. Don't waste your breath. Keep talking about the. What do you have in your first aid medicine kit at home that's worth parents having? Oh, look, my absolute favorite device is a snot sucker. Yes. This is my first child that I've had one. I don't know what I did before. Game changer. And if you're someone that likes popping pimples or blackheads Mm -hmm. or whatever, it is so satisfying. I became obsessed. I mean, you describe it to Mm. someone who who hasn't used it before. They think you are revolting. Do you use the automatic one or the one that you actually provide the suction? Oh, no, the one I provide the suction. I'm not letting a machine do that for me. It's very satisfying. And there's a filter. It doesn't go into your mouth. Exactly. There's a filter in the middle that catches the snot. (laughs) The younger the child the more reliant they're going to be on drinking, so breast or bottle feeding. If you've got, you know, an eight-year-old, they can still eat and drink with a blocked nose. But the big issue with a cold, bronchiolitis, for example, in say a six-month-old or five-month-old, the big concern is dehydration. And the reason they get dehydrated is because if you've got a blocked nose and then you block the mouth with the breast or bottle, you just can't breathe. So when young kids get these conditions, we recommend saline up the nose, not breast milk, not water, saline up the nose. So you want to loosen all of the snot and mucus and then suction, whether at hospital or at home. You you want to use some sort of device so you're not using your own mouth. I have seen parents do that and you're just going to increase the chances of you catching that bug, which is not going to help anyone. And it's always helpful to create a really good seal around the nostril with that device and then block the opposite side. So you're really, really clearing that nose. And, you know, when my kids were sick at that age, I used to do it before every single feed and again before every single sleep because you just want to give them the best chance to get nourishment and then sleep and recover. Okay, what else? What else is in your bag of tricks at home, Dr. Golly? That would be all for management. I don't use cough medicine. Um, A lot of the time they contain codeine, which is very, very constipating. So you're sort of replacing one problem for another. (laughs) But one thing I do use a lot of is, again, leaning on that preventative health side. And again, you know, I preface this by saying, this is my wife's domain. She's the expert here. But we, we do use a lot of natural things when well to try to maintain immunity, which we then sort of double or triple when a cold is coming. Things like echinacea extract, propolis drops, high-dose vitamin C. You know, I, this morning I had a, a flu bomb. Have you heard of a flu bomb? No. Wow. What's a flu bomb? Puts hair in your chest. It's a shot of ginger garlic, cayenne pepper, a drop of tea tree oil, lemon and honey all mixed in and shot it down. 
wow, it, it really knocks your socks off, but it it works. All I can say is I'm glad we're doing this via Zoom because your breath I would, would stink. stink. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> but stink. Are these things that have evidence or are these things that you say you're leaning more on Eastern side of things? Because I think people are like, do pri- probiotics work? Do you know, giving them vitamin D supplements work? Like what has evidence and then what's it doesn't do any harm? Yeah, so there's absolutely no question they do not have evidence in Western literature, okay? The evidence base in Eastern medicine is very different. It's much more historical word of mouth passed down through generations, which is harder to then critique and and pick apart. So, you know, there is no strong evidence for vitamin D. There is no strong evidence for probiotics. There is evidence for high-dose vitamin C to turn off an immediate allergic reaction, not anaphylaxis type, but you know, hay fever type things. If, if a child's allergic to a pet and then they come into, into contact with them, then a big dose of vitamin C can reduce that. So there's a little bit of evidence that's not fantastic, um, these things probably don't do any harm, vitamin D and probiotics, but they won't be a magic panacea. I think if you're spending too much time focusing on those things, I think it's better to think about the things that you can control. For example, older children, do they practice good hand hygiene? Are they cleaning their hands before they're eating? Uh, Do they have a healthy, balanced diet? Really important, probably most important, what's happening with their sleep? Like I know that I am the one who always talks about sleep, but there's a reason so he's laughing. why. No wonder I've been sick for three weeks straight. <laughs> it's absolutely crucial. That's where you get your restoration. So uh, what is happening with a child's sleep? There are so many times that I see children who are mouth breathers, you know, six, seven, eight, 12-year-olds who are mouth breathers. Now, if you mouth breathe, overnight, I'm talking about when you're well, not because you have a blocked nose, if you just mouth breathe, then there is no question that you are going to encounter more upper respiratory infections because mouth breathing will dry out the oropharynx, the back of the mouth and throat, and that promotes bug growth. Wow. So these are the kinds of things that I look at as opposed to, should I take this probiotic, should I take that? I don't think those things are going to make a blind bit of difference. If your child isn't sleeping well, if your child doesn't have a mostly healthy, balanced diet, if your child isn't, you know, getting outside, getting sun exposure, these are the things that are the prerequisites before you start looking at uh, either Western medicine, Eastern medicine, etc. Now, what's a normal amount of illnesses? Like if your kids just started daycare, because it can just feel relentless. And I remember once I took Goldie to the doctor because I was like, she must have some kind of immune issue because she had been sick nonstop for six weeks and the doctor was just like, she's completely normal. What's normal? That's a really, really great question. As pediatricians, we tolerate 12 illnesses a year. So that's roughly the frequency of once a month. And that's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. And we're talking about a child, you know, your sort of typical child attending daycare or early kindergarten. And, you know, people will often come to me and say, I want immune investigations because my child's sick all the time. Now, when you dig a little bit deeper and you look into the history, they're not actually sick all the time. They're sick once a month, but there are a few layers here that you need to consider. So what's very common is that you get, like we talked about before, the most common illness, a viral upper respiratory infection, makes you sick for on average about a week. And then you can have, after fully recovering from the actual pathogen, you can have up to three weeks of what we call post-infectious cough. So the child is well, there's no fever, but they're just coughing almost constantly. They're eating, they're drinking, they're playing, everything is good, but they're coughing. Now, the child's not actually technically unwell, but what it looks like is that they're sick for a week. They've then got Mm -hmm. infectious cough for three weeks. That adds up to four, and then you're ready for your monthly cycle of another cold. So it can sometimes seem like a child, especially one in daycare or kinder, is actually sick for a year 
when in actual fact they're cycling between getting sick and then recovering. The big question for me, there are two, two really big questions. Is the child recovering between episodes? If they are, that's brilliant. And what is the severity of the episode? So common cold, not requiring antibiotics, unwell for a few days, post-infectious cough, that's okay. If you're talking about significant infection, pneumonia, requiring hospitalization, abscess, needing to be drained, uh, blood infection, these things are high severity. You know, they're uncommon. And if they're happening more than once to one child, something needs to be investigated. So what do you do if you've got multiple kids? Are you just cycling on sickness after sickness after sickness? I think you can answer that question. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I just like, is there some sort of hack? Surely there's a hack. I wish there was. So this is really just about reassuring that everyone is not alone, especially in winter, because we all go through the hardest times. It really is. It really, I mean, like my wife and I joke about it, that we had like literally years because our kids are quite close together. Mm. And we had like periods of like years when there was never a day when at least one of five was sick. So when does it end, Jade? Like, do you find that your older two, it's less relentless now? Like when does this end? There's got to be some light. Personally, I have found that having a a nearly 10-year-old, 9-year-old and a 4-year-old, Yumi's been at daycare since she was like 12 months old. So she got a lot of the sicknesses when she was younger and now they would probably get a cold or two in winter or a gastro bug and other than that touch wood, the girls are pretty healthy in in saying that they don't get bugs. I'm not mm. saying that they're healthy in the way that they eat <laughs> and every other aspect, but their immune it's less systems are quite yeah. – I think my husband gets more sick than what my kids do. So, yeah. So it is. It does have to do with uh, your immune system and it does right. have to do with you just becoming older and stronger, et cetera. But the real key for when it ends is when their development improves. So if you think about right. Right, a nine-month-old – where do they sit? They sit on the floor, which is where bugs sit. And if you put something in their hand, instinctively, they put it straight into their mouth. So it's like the easiest journey for a pathogen, for a virus to get into that little human because they they play around where bugs live. Now, if you then progress to kindergarten, the child is somewhat less likely to just put hands in their mouth, put objects in their mouth. And, And as their development improves, you get to school age, they tend to sit on chairs. They don't tend to sit on the floor as much and they tend to, you know, sharing doesn't happen as often. So when it ends is actually when their development encourages them to move away from where the bugs live. Right, because I thought that was related to just exposure because some people wrote in saying their kids don't attend daycare but they're going to be starting school and they were like, do I need to get myself ready that, my kids are going to go through at school what the other kids Mm. went through at daycare. But is that not the case because they're going to be sitting on their own chair and hopefully not putting things in their mouth? No, it's not the case. I hear this a lot, this talk about, you know, uh, it's good for them, it builds their immunity. And then people, I've seen people send their kids to daycare when they neither want to nor need to just to try to get them exposed to bugs. It's absolute nonsense. There is logically, and there is evidence that shows that if you have a child who's never attended daycare or kinder who then enters school, they will have lower immunity from immune memory. But so what? They don't play on the floor anymore. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, That's so true. So don't worry about it and definitely don't feel, I don't want parents feeling like they have to send their kids in order to expose them. And I also don't want people feeling like they need to somehow justify sending their kids to daycare. I don't, you know, people will say, I'm trying to build their immunity. It doesn't. If you need to send them or if you want to send them, that's enough of a reason. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to explain yourself. But this concept that they they become stronger, yes, they will have immune memory, but do they become stronger? No. Maybe it was just parents with kids in daycare trying to put a light at the end of the tunnel on the winter going, oh, at least it's building their resistance, their resilience. 
but no. It's just, it, it is hard. It is what it is. And we cycle through it every single year. But generally speaking, if they are recovering between episodes, as I said, a frequency once a month, and as long as it's not associated with any things like growth, failure, poor sleep, developmental stagnation, then uh, we just write it out. Do immunizations help with all the illnesses? Yeah, immunizations certainly help with the ones we can immunize against, absolutely. For example, you know, the gastro virus, the common gastrovirus that we use in the immunization schedule for very young babies, that is incredibly helpful. Hang on, can you get that for older children and adults? Look, it's not, the immunization schedule is not designed because we can, it's designed for when it is most problematic. So gastro in a... When is gastro not problematic? (laughs) It's a pain, but gastro in a 10-year-old is most commonly going to be a couple days of feeling crook, vomiting, diarrhea, and they're bouncing back shortly thereafter. The same thing in a three-week-old is life-threatening. So we have the gastrovirus immunization in the first six months of life. Now, if you have a child who is unimmunized and parents, for example, want to do a catch-up schedule or child was born overseas, whatever it is, you do catch up all the vaccines, but you don't give that one because it's just not important. So it's all about what the bug is when we give it. But I think some people think that You know, I know some parents guilt themselves if they take their baby out of the house and the baby gets a cold and then they go, oh, I should have waited till their six-week immunizations. But the immunizations were never going to help them against a cold. Yes, you're you're 100%. Well, depending what the cause of it was RSV. Yes. Yeah. It's really common. I feel like this is a bit of a new phenomenon where parents are sort of locking down at home for the first six weeks, I want to tell parents, you absolutely do not need to do this. And the reasons why is because immunization is a cumulative thing. So when you get your six-week vaccinations, your coverage is really unimpressive. Take, for example, whooping cough. Even when fully immunized, the coverage is about 85%, 90%. It's one of the least impressive of the vaccines. Others are significantly higher, 99 plus, for example. But it's almost like one dose will give you, you know, I'm I'm pulling these numbers from nowhere. You know, one dose might give you 15%. Your second dose might push you up to 40%. Your third dose up to 60%. So it's a cumulative thing. And you would never lock a child down for a full year to complete their first year of immunization. So you do not need to wait at home before starting immunizations. What you do need to do, which I think is largely common sense, is not let someone with a active cold hold mm-hmm. a baby. And I think now compared to say four years ago, it's easier than ever to be able to tell a loved one, don't come over if you've got a cold or don't come in my house. No one, people are not as sensitive to that as they used to be. I remember when my first was born and people would have a cough or cold and it was like this really awkward conversation where you don't want them to come too close but you don't want to offend them. That doesn't exist anymore. Another question just came to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Sorry, Dr. Golly just asked me to ask this question. That's why we're just being a bit silly over here. Milk and that kind of thing after we've had a gastro bug or not so much us, our kids, is there certain things that we should avoid feeding them after they've had a gastrovirus? Yes, and yes, you as well. So all adults, kids, babies, kids, adults, everyone. Your dog. The the lining of your gut contains what we call a brush border and it's, it's basically the inside of the gut produces the enzymes that we use to break down the food that we eat. So in the example of lactose found in dairy, the inside of our gut makes lactase. Lactase is the enzyme we use to break down lactose. Now, if you have gastro, I want you to consider it's like a grenade going off (laughs) inside your gut and it just kind of damage you, destroy that brush border, which takes about three weeks to grow back. So the inflammation reduces your ability 
to make those enzymes. So again, with that example of lactose, you're not making much lactase. If you then recover from your gastro and you're totally fine, you're feeling good, it's days later, you then have a glass of milk, your body cannot handle that lactose load because it hasn't made enough lactase. And so you are effectively someone who's never been lactose intolerant. You are functionally, transiently, completely lactose intolerant. So people will often come to me saying, my child has had gastro and it continued for six weeks and I don't know what's going on. It's not gastro that continued. Gastro was two days. What's continued is a post-infectious lactose intolerance. And every time you send lactose down, you're just going to inflame the gut. You're going to, any brush border that's grown up, you're going to destroy again. So what you need to do is you need to give it three weeks of rest where you're not sending down foods that can't be digested. And that's when you regain the ability to tolerate lactose. So after the advice I give families for both children and adults is after an episode of gastro, go really easy on the dairy. You don't have to cut it out completely, but go really easy on it for about three weeks. If you have a baby who's having a cow's milk formula, then I would, and who is having ongoing diarrhea for the same reason, I would consider adding a over-the-counter supplement of lactase. There's a couple of different brands that make it. It's basically a few drops you add to each bottle. You can even drop it into the bub's mouth. And what it does is it provides the enzyme in the same serving as the actual lactose. Really, really helpful. What are your thoughts on kids under five getting the flu vaccination? I don't push anything on parents. I, I see my role as providing information. I want people to be informed. I want people to be empowered and then make their own minds up. When it comes to influenza vaccine, it can be given from as early as six months of age. It is an annual vaccine. The first time that a child, a young child gets it, you need two doses one month apart, but every year thereafter is just one dose. There are so many things to take into account. Influenza, I don't know if either of you have had it, but it can really wipe you out. Well, the reason I ask is because my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law and my niece and nephew, they have all been hit with influenza A for two weeks and they're still so unwell, like they have to lay down every day. The kids are just they're lethargic. She's been to the doctor. They're like, we are so sorry. There's nothing we can do. You just have to rest. And it makes me think, is this something that we should actually, should I go and get my whole family and myself immunized just so we don't have to go through this? Because it is, has been absolute torture for them. Yeah. And there's no way of knowing because some people can have the flu and it acts like a common cold, a little bit snotty for a week and then they get over it oh. other people can as you as you've seen can get really really smashed by it and then be lethargic for weeks thereafter and of course like we talked about there can be complications like pneumonia etc so flu season really peaks around august september um, but the vaccine is available around now may june it's a very personal decision. I, I feel like people who have had the flu, it's a no-brainer because they know just how bad it can be. I'm a healthcare worker, so I feel like my exposure levels are higher than average, so I do get the vaccine every year. It's, in fact, uh, mandated by the hospital that I work at. So for me, that's an easy decision. When it comes to children, it's very, very personal. It's entirely up to you. You know, consider all factors, consider exposure level. For example, overseas travel. Influenza is the most common bug that you catch with overseas travel. So that may push you over the line to, to do it one year as opposed to not. It's, it's, it's very, very personal, but it, the, the vaccine certainly does work. It won't stop you catching the flu like all vaccines, it will reduce the severity of your infection should you catch it that season. Two questions. How long is someone contagious for when they have the flu? The contagiousness depends on the bug, but generally speaking, if you're talking about an upper respiratory bug, so cough, cold, sneeze kind of thing, it, it has to do with how much the person is spreading the love. So if they are 
actively coughing, sneezing, mm-hmm. they have a fever, they're going to be spreading that virus. Sophie, get out of the pod right now, please. <laughs> She's lost her voice. I'm going to get sick. I knew there was a reason she was asking me. My other question, Dr. Golly, was do you find that a lot of children, when they do get the flu, overcome it a lot quicker than what adults would? It's variable. There's no rules with that. It can go both ways. And you can even have the same flu virus going through a family where one person doesn't notice it, the other person is in hospital, and another one has a mild cold. So it it can really, it's not about the virus, it's about the virus in the host. And does that come back to the immune system? Yes, yes. That's what I was about to say. Exactly right. It's about how run down you are, how stressed you are, what your sleep is like, what your baseline immunity is like. Do you have another bug at the same time? Part of prevention is to just try to maximize uh, health as much as you can when you're well. Yeah, I remember when I was pregnant with Goldie, Poppy had first started daycare and she kept bringing every little bug she could find home and she'd be over it in like 24 hours and I was sick, no joke, for six weeks straight because I would have it for at least a week and then by the time I was getting better, she would just come back with something that seemed really minor and then I would get this fully fledged version of it that would then last another 10 days and then she'd be ready to bring the next thing back. Yeah, and that's because you're on the back foot, not just being pregnant. But also with how you do pregnancy, very, very much on the back foot. So it's no surprise that you're going to be hit harder. What about humidifiers? Should we be using them when our little ones have upper respiratory tract infections? Yes. So that's another great question. It's similar to we talked about saline spray up the nose. So a humidifier is just putting more water into the air that we breathe. So if you humidify the air, by definition, you should loosen all of the secretions and they should come out more easily. The truth is they work really well for whom they work really well. Mm. And there's just some kids where you use it and it's a game changer and others you use it and it does nothing. So for example, my son really benefits from a humidifier. He's the the croupy kind of mm. kid. My girls, we tried it, didn't do anything. Um, it just made the whole room soggy and we stopped using it. What is the deal with that? Why are some families like the croup family and other families are like, oh, whenever they get anything, it's the gastro family. Like why does yeah. some... Is it like they've got slightly weaker lungs or slightly weaker bowels? Like what? It's just coincidence. Uh, look, it's just a lot of it is genetic. You know, if you've got parents who are asthmatic, kids will have a higher chance of, of having asthma as well. And then asthma will be triggered when they have a cold because it is the most common trigger of an asthma episode. But um, yeah, it's genetics. We don't know why, but I absolutely agree with you. There are some families that just get gastro easily and others where it never, ever touches them. And wow. I'm jealous of those things. <laughs> I'm not saying anything out loud. I'm, not saying, <laughs> I'm just. Hmm. Is it a myth or a fact that being cold makes you sick or sicker? So should water play be out of action in winter? I always remember my mum when I was running around with a t-shirt on. She said, Jane, get a jumper on. It's freezing. You'll catch a cold. What's the truth? Look, there are some viruses that do prefer a colder climate, like rhinovirus and other common cold. Uh, pathogen. But look, the reality is it's like we talked about before. It's about proximity. uh, And then we lean into Eastern practice where we talk about general body stress. So, you know, cold, they use terminology like dampness. These things are not good for the body. And, you know, just imagine you, Soph, being on the back foot from pregnancy, dehydration, you come into contact with a bug. You're not going to fight a particularly impressive immune war and the same thing goes with the body so i'll answer the question if you were to go outside by yourself and be cold and not come into contact with a virus you won't get sick does that make sense yeah Mm. yeah so the cold doesn't give you a cold it's just unfortunate that we didn't think of a different word Mm. i think that's why they're so closely we we were lazy yeah yeah, but it's it's a combination of things. It's how you present when the virus comes to you. Yeah. And so how do we dress our kids when they have a fever? It can be confusing because sometimes they're hot one second, have chills the next. Do we want to keep them warm? Yeah, so it, it's well, I think the best way to understand that is to explain what a fever is, why we get it. So part of the immune cascade and the response that happens in your body when you are fighting an infection is that you have 
these things called cytokines, which are like messengers within your bloodstream, and they travel to your brain, to the thermostat, right? So imagine a thermostat in the wall where you can control the temperature. We have one inside our brain that controls our body temperature. And what it does is it drops that thermostat. So if you're comfortable at 37, it drops your thermostat down to, you know, just assume the number 35. So all of a sudden you feel cold, your body does things to heat you up, Mm. right? But in reality, you weren't 35. So you were 37, your body's trying to push you from what it thinks is 35 up to 37. What it's really doing is pushing you 37 to 39. And that's why people will be in a hot sweat yet shivering. Yeah. Okay. So what do you do when people feel like that? You can either respond to the symptom that they describe. So if they say, I'm freezing, you can put another blanket But really what that's going to do is it's going to make them sweat more and probably become more dehydrated and feel crappier or you give them paracetamol or ibuprofen and what those things do is they bring back your thermostat to a normal level while they're active. So they're called antipyretics. Pyretic is like pyromaniac. It's about the Latin term for fire. It's about heat. So um, pyrexia is fever and an antipyretic like paracetamol or ibuprofen will bring down your fever by resetting closer to normal your body thermostat. So interesting. But don't do things like cold baths. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because I've heard lately that people, uh, you know, the old wives' tale was dip your feet in lukewarm bath water to bring the temperature down. Is that not a thing? No, do what feels comfortable, but, you know, you won't bring down a body temperature by putting someone in a cold environment. You're just going to cause more stress mm. to the body. Remember, temperature is is like it's an internal thing. It's not what your fingers feel like. You know, we, we don't measure temperature by touching someone's finger. We measure it by putting a thermometer in the mouth or in the backside. It's all about your central, your core temperature. So, don't do those things. And, but also, you know, if someone is sitting there boiling hot and sweating and they say to you, I'm so cold, can I have a blanket? You don't really want to say no, you know, take your clothes off, sit in a cold bath. It's just, it's torture. So the best way to manage a fever like that, that's causing significant symptoms is to bring the fever down by resetting the thermostat by using an antipyretic medication. Now let's move on to snot. Yes. We're going to go glamorous here. Does the colour mean anything? Nope, nothing. Wow. Zero. Nothing. Because don't a lot of daycare say if your child has green snot, they're not allowed to come to school? Oh, it depends what question you're asking. So some people say that clear snot means virus and green snot means bacteria. That's absolutely not the case. We're talking about you know, contagious children or or humans. And, you know, the difficulty in answering your question earlier, Jade, about how long is your child sick for? Well, Mm. if they're they're sick for a week and they've got a cough for three weeks, that's a whole month out of daycare. That that isn't okay because they're not contagious when they have a post-infectious cough. What they might still have is a little bit of a runny nose, but it's probably going to be clear. So I think that if you've got yellow-green snot, it's early in the in the infection. You've got a bit of a fever. It's all happening. Yes, it means there is an infection. If you are otherwise well and you have a runny nose, that's probably more could be attributed to allergic rhinitis or hay fever. So in that way, clear snot doesn't usually represent an infection, and yellow green is highly suggestive. Of a bug. Yeah, because someone wrote in saying every time my son gets cold, his nose runs. And so he keeps getting sent home from daycare because he's got a runny nose. It needs to be taken in context. So if you've got a child that just has a runny nose, um, I get asked to write letters to daycares all the time for that. This child's got a runny nose. They they don't have an illness, you know. Take things in context. Do they have a fever? Are they looking unwell? You know, are they coughing? Are they sneezing? If the child's looking totally fine and running around and and normal, eating, drinking, behaving as normal, and they've got a runny nose, 
But I get that. Like it's not a – daycares aren't medical experts. Like it's not up to them to diagnose your child, I don't think. Like the other day we had to take Poppy to the GP because she had a post, like a cough after having a viral infection, and they just said we're more than happy to have her back but you just need a letter saying that she's no longer contagious because it's not up to them to know whether a cough is contagious or not. Yeah, I agree. It's like the hardest Mm. job in the world, you know, running a daycare because – there are parents who will not do the right thing and who will dose and drop. It's it's really it really it puts other children at, at risk. It's hard for parents, especially working parents, but it does happen. And so you've got daycares have to sort of be you, you know you need this sort of bouncer yeah. at the front door, um, and it is really hard because if you're dropping your child off and you see another kid come in with a runny nose, you you, the, you know a lot of parents think now, oh God, that's going to knock me out in. 10 days time, but at the same time, if it's your child and they always have a runny nose because they've got hay fever, then it's unfair to be judged and certainly unfair to be picked up every day. So it's a really, really difficult, difficult uh, space. Can we talk about viral versus bacterial? Mm. Because it can be extremely disappointing for parents to go to the doctor and be told, oh, it's nothing we can do, just have some Panadol and Nurofen. Can you explain the differences between the two? Absolutely. So viruses are really common, really, really much more common than bacteria. These are just two different types of bugs that viruses do not respond to antibiotics and bacteria do. So certain kids are prone to viral infections and certain kids uh, tend to get bacteria. So for example, an ear infection is commonly bacterial and a child will need antibiotics for that to clear the ear infection, to also clear the sludge that builds up behind the ear as well. But because viral upper respiratory infections are so common, antibiotics are seldom necessary. And what we tend to do is we tend to just wait a little bit, wait a little bit, because a virus will be a couple of days and it should be getting better as time goes by although there is often a little bit of a dip in the evening where kids can get a little bit worse. So if we can prevent the unnecessary use of antibiotics, it's extremely important because of antibiotic resistance in bacteria and other bugs. But at the same time, if you have, like we said before, you've got a fever that's been going for 48 hours, if the child's getting worse, not better, then antibiotics might be necessary. And don't be disheartened if you take the child to the GP on day one, you get sent home, it's viral, Taken back on day two, don't worry, it's viral. And on day three, ah, it might be bacterial. That's not a sign of a bad doctor. That's just a sign of, in fact, a really good doctor who's trying to avoid unnecessary prescribing of antibiotics. But also you need to advocate for your child. So if you know that your child has a certain MO when it comes to illnesses and it's a GP you've not seen before, then you may need to advocate for your child and, and push stronger and explain the situation, what has happened in the past. Just to throw yet another curveball at you, you can have what we call a secondary bacterial infection. So you know how we talked about you, Soph, being on the back foot Mm. when you were pregnant? Yes. You can have a viral illness which makes you unwell, and then while you're unwell, you can come into contact with the bacteria and your ability to fight that bacteria will be reduced because you're already fighting a virus. So sometimes we see kids who have a viral illness, two, three days, they're slowly getting better, 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 and then suddenly they go backwards. That is a quite a red flag for a secondary bacterial infection because you don't often get, like we talked about the cycle of viruses, you don't often get a viral infection days after a viral infection. It's not so common. I would be thinking about a secondary bacterial and when wondering whether or not that child needs a course of antibiotics. That's really kicking you while you're down, that one. Yeah. Yeah. If our little ones need antibiotics, should we be giving probiotics and that kind of thing at the same time? Yeah, I do think so. I think that's a really good point. Although you can also achieve, um, I spoke to a really good American gastroenterologist about this recently, you can also achieve the desired effect through diet. So, you know, just a little bit of really clean Greek yogurt will achieve the same thing as most probiotics available over the counter. And again, clean, healthy food that's not too cold, too hot. But certainly most people, it's common practice, for example, in Europe, that you always get prescribed probiotics at the time of being prescribed antibiotics. And it makes sense. 
I was told that there's no point having the probiotics until you've had the antibiotics because essentially the antibiotics kill all the biotics. So you would then wait and then have the probiotics once you've finished the antibiotic course. Biotic, 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 biotic. No, you're right. There's typically a longer tail. So if your antibiotics are five days, you would have probiotics for 10. Okay. So you'll continue it longer. Right. Now, speaking of medications, if we've got a child that will not take medication, do you have any tips? Yeah, there are some newer ones that are coming out like gummies. There are two things that I recommend parents do all the time, especially with younger kids. Number one, you don't have to use one brand only. I'm not going to go into particular brands, but there's one, for example, for um, you know six-month-olds that uses this disgusting flavor that no kid likes. Oh, you cherry. Go, you go, Gross. Yeah, cherry. There you go. It's <laughs> I know what it is. He was trying to be anonymous. I know. I know, but it's terrible. And yet the exact same medication with a brand that sits right next to it is in orange, which most kids will have happily. So just remember that you don't have to have one particular brand. You can choose a brand that your child likes the flavor of. The second thing is, and this is the most common thing that I see, when you've got a small child, certain brands will have the same product in six months to two-year-olds and then two to six and then eight to 12. It's the same product. It's just a different concentration. I think that this is just a marketing ploy. It's probably a really good one. But I think also their argument is that they try to keep the dose volume quite consistent to prevent accidental overdose. So you give an eight-year-old five mil, you give a two-year-old five mil, you give a six-month-old five mil, but it's the it's the correct dose of medication, mm. just more watered down. So what you can do is if you're giving medication to a one-year-old, when you're at the pharmacy, buy the bottle that is meant for the five to eight-year-olds yeah. because it's a much more concentrated dose. And when you look at the actual instructions on the box, even though it's for five to eight-year-olds, it still says the dose for a one-year-old. Yes, but, but only it's on tiny, the box. But it's tiny. And if you yeah. get rid of the box, you will not know. So is it keep not on the, the bottle? They don't keep it on the bottle. But you can always find it online. Uh, okay. If you need to, you can look online. But the point is, is that giving a six-month-old one and a half mils is a hell of a lot easier than giving a six-month or yeah. five mils. Absolutely. That's a great suggestion. And also, if you've got multiple children that are all ages, you end up just buying that bottle because yeah. you can feed everyone <laughs> that medicine. <laughs> dinner is served. Yeah. No need for dinner. The other thing, although this is a little bit more expensive, if you need to give a child antibiotics, you can go to what's called a compounding pharmacy. This is a pharmacy that is able to, um, they're specially trained pharmacists and they can turn tablets and capsules into liquids for people who can't swallow. So what they can do is they can take your uh, amoxicillin or whichever antibiotic you are prescribed and you can choose the flavour. So you can say, please turn this into a nicely high concentrated banana liquid and then give that to your child because my child is happy with banana flavour, whatever it may be. Hmm. Interesting. And then things like putting it with sprinkles, with yeah. yogurt. Also, I think a lot of parents don't know about suppositories as well. Obviously, not all medications are available in suppository form, but I have one child who literally refuses medication. And so we will often give Panadol as a suppository because it's just the easiest way. Yeah. So suppositories are actually absorbed quicker than if they're taken orally. So they're really, really good. Remember a couple of things. It can be a little bit traumatizing as kids get older, but usually as they get older, they're happy to take oral medication. Yeah. Make sure you put a glove, use your pinky finger, not your index finger, and try not to push further than your first knuckle. Oh my Can gosh. I tell a funny story? Yes, please. Nick got home once after being at a friend's birthday dinner and he'd had a few drinks and one of our children was a little bit sick and I'd been home like with the kids on my own. So he got home and one of them was crying and was awake and felt really hot. So he's like, oh, I'll do so for favour and I'll... I'll settle this. So anyway, she, she'd been a bit sick and he gave her the suppository. Anyway, the next morning he woke up and it was actually 
my birthday and he was cooking up a birthday brekkie for me that involved prawns and he thought he'd been peeling the prawns and had rubbed his eye and had an allergic reaction. But then he looked back and he'd accidentally given himself pink eye because he'd (laughs) given the suppository and hadn't practised good hand hygiene (laughs) and gave himself pink eye. Anyway, for two days after that, he was off on a photo shoot and they were only able to shoot him in one direction (laughs) because one of his eyes was just absolutely looking terrible. So, yes. Make sure you use a glove. (laughs) Brilliant. Oh, Nick. How cautious do we need to be about keeping toddlers away from newborns? And should we pull our little one out of daycare when a newborn arrives in the home? If you can and you want to, do it. If you can't, you don't have a choice. It's all about your situation, what is available to you and your choice. There is no need to do it. Are they more likely to bring bugs home? Absolutely. Is the baby newborn more likely to catch something? Yeah. There's no denying that. In the setting of a breastfed baby, what happens commonly is that the toddler brings the bug home, the bug goes to everyone in the family, the mum catches it and gives the baby the antibodies before the baby gets terribly unwell. So, that's a protective mechanism for babies that aren't breastfed. You know, it, it happens. But at the same time, if the situation doesn't allow for it, I don't want anyone feeling guilty. And, you know, yeah. I talked on my podcast with Moana Hope, who had that exact scenario where her eldest child, Sphere, brought home a bug and put the newborn in hospital with bronchiolitis. And it's, it is heartbreaking, but it is possible and it does happen. And one shouldn't feel bad about it because if the child needs to be in daycare, if the parents need it, if the child loves it, whatever it may be, then it just has to happen and we need to manage things as they come. And can you practice things like, oh, you know, make sure we wash our hands in the newborn stages, make sure you just touch the feet, don't touch the head, you know, would that help? Oh, yeah, it's a it's a great, I think you turn everything into a teaching opportunity. I think that's wonderful. You know, good opportunity, good age to teach kids about hand hygiene without scaring them. We use careful language, not we don't want to scare kids about bugs and viruses because it, we can go overboard, as we saw during the pandemic years. But I think it's a great opportunity and you, you can teach kids about immune systems and when you're bigger and strong like you are, you can fight bugs. But if you're a little baby like this one, it's a bit harder. Beautiful example. And also, remember we talked about where bugs live? So I remember when my when my first child was born, we had this gathering where family and friends came over and we had a big party. And um, I put our daughter in the capsule on the kitchen table. It was quite high. It was like an awkward height for people who wanted to like see the baby or take photos because it was right in the middle of this big kitchen bench and people couldn't quite touch her or anything. And (laughs) that was my plan all along. So remember, if you keep your baby up high, the bugs don't live up high and you can do those small measures you can try to prevent uh, you know, the transfer of bugs. But at the same time, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's why I also like the carrier as well, because I feel like when you're out and about, sometimes older people, if your baby's in the pram, like just coming up and putting their hands into the pram, and you're like, what do you think you're doing? But I feel like there's only so close people feel comfortable getting to another adult. (laughs) So if you've literally got a baby on your chest, like they're less likely to be trying to put their hands in there. Yeah, I agree. I feel like we know the answer to this one because we've been learning today, but Mm. are subsequent kids generally less sick when they start daycare because they've already been exposed to all of it before? But you've kind of told us it's not about exposure. Well, yes and no. Yes, because they will have some degree of immune memory. No, because they don't play around on the floor as much as you do in daycare. Again, it comes down to the situation the parents find themselves in Don't ever be forced or coerced or guilted into doing something that you don't really want or need to do. And if people are going around saying, oh, you're a bad parent if you don't put your child in daycare because then they won't have a strong immune system, I would wonder if perhaps that parent who's telling you that is just trying to make themselves feel better for using daycare and having frequent bugs. So 
just the bottom line is don't stress. Do what suits you. Do what suits your family. You're not doing your child a disservice by not sending them, and you're not doing your child a disservice by sending them. Beautifully said. And our final question, can you please explain why bubs under three months with a fever have to see a doctor? And I never knew this. Yeah, it's a non-negotiable. We don't tolerate any fevers in very, very young babies. Do you know why we don't tolerate fevers in people who are undergoing chemotherapy? They don't have an immune system, right? We're turning off their immune system. So they don't have the white cells to fight bugs. And we get very, very nervous when someone who doesn't have an immune system comes into contact with a bug. Babies are not very different. In the first few months of life, they've got a very, very unimpressive immune system. And when they come into contact with bugs, it's a it's a real battle for them to overcome it. You know, what might barely even register as a sneeze in an adult can be really dangerous for a two-month-old. And it's for many reasons. It's because the bug can spread with ease in a baby's body. They're susceptible to different bugs compared to older children. The same bug can cause a sniffle in someone who's older and, you know, a completely a catastrophic complication in a baby. I don't say this to scare people. I just say when you see a fever in a young baby under three months, you just do not, you know, do not stop. Just go straight to have that baby reviewed by a doctor as soon as possible. I don't think, well, it is scary, but I think it's really important to be aware of because in the almost 10 years of parenting, only recently through the podcast did I know that was actually a thing. If your child is three months and under with a fever, you go directly to hospital or to a doctor. But you know what, Jade? I reckon that you've always known it. I reckon that if you had that with a young baby, you wouldn't have hesitated. Yeah, true. Mum's instinct, right? Exactly. And that's like if there's one sort of take-home message, it's all about that parental instinct. Um, I know we talk about this a lot, but if you are worried, there's no one who knows your baby better than you. I might know a lot about the science and a lot about the treatment, et cetera, but I don't know about the temperament of your baby. I don't know about the nuance and the little things. If you feel like something isn't right, you are absolutely correct and you need to have that baby reviewed. And if you're dismissed, push and advocate stronger. And I think people worry about wasting people's time. I mean, in my short stint that I did in the ED, it's very common for parents to bring their kids in and then suddenly their kids are running around the waiting room or running around the, you know, where you assess the patients, it's very normal and no one cares. No one ever thinks that you've over-exaggerated or overreacted. They're just stoked to see your child feeling well again. And what, what would I rather see? I'd rather see a smiling baby. I'd be only too happy to see a smiling baby. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you, Dr. Golly, for sharing all your beautiful wisdom with us. We hope everyone who's listening has enjoyed. And if they haven't, as if they haven't. How did I go not speaking out of 10? Um, I would say you did a really, oh, let's say two out of 10. So that's generous. Yeah, I know. (laughs) No, thank you so much, Dr. Golly. My pleasure, ladies. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.